0: Hello and welcome to the Art of Worldbuilding podcast, episode number 5, part 3. Today we conclude our discussion on creating species and races. We talk about their gods, characteristics, relationships, and more. This material is discussed in Chapter 3 of Creating Life, Volume 1 in the Art of Worldbuilding book series. Do you want practical advice on how to build better worlds faster and have more fun doing it? The Art of Worldbuilding book series, website, blog, and podcast will make your worlds beat the competition. This is your host, Randy Ellison, and I have 30 years of world-building advice, tips, and tricks to share. Follow along now at artofworldbuilding.com. As usual, I'm going to mostly use the word species rather than continuously saying species or races throughout this episode. All of the advice applies equally well to either. If you've been following along with this podcast, we've already discussed gods in a previous episode. What we want to look at now is the species and how their gods can impact their lives. We don't need to have already invented our gods, although that is certainly an option. In my experience, it doesn't really matter which one you do first, because there's going to be a lot of crossing back and forth between species, gods, and even the world, and altering things continuously as we build up what we're doing. Refinement is an inherent part of worldbuilding. Few people ever get it perfect right out of the gate because there's so much work to do and it will span weeks, months, or even years of work. Some ideas stand the test of time better than others. We are also almost certain to expand upon an idea as we go along. So some of the advice in this section may flip-flop back and forth between assuming you already have gods and are now trying to decide which ones your species worships, or that you are creating the species first and then are going to add the gods after the fact. It doesn't really matter as long as you make a good decision. Saying that reminds me of the phrase, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it's just part of the process that we sometimes ditch something that wasn't working out after all, or if we had a better idea and replace something. The only time we are really stuck with an idea is if we have already published it. However, this depends upon your ethics, for lack of a better word. There are certainly authors who have released a product that has contradicted a previous release. You can do this too, but be aware that people tend to have a pretty good memory and will catch you on this, so it really depends on whether you want to be known for being consistent or not. Rabid fans won't care and will just love everything you do, but more casual fans will... Uh, Unfortunately, feel some disrespect for your world building if you contradict yourself a lot, so just be careful. One of the ways to avoid contradicting yourself is to keep everything written down in a file and uh, have a system of files or even spreadsheets where it's easy for you to refer to everything and make sure that you don't uh, contradict yourself later. This is infinitely more effective than just relying on your memory. So let's get into talking about gods and species. Whether we have the gods or the species first, one of the things we need to do once we have both of them is to align their character. In episode 5, part 2, we talked about the concept of good versus evil, and I'm just going to use that terminology here for the sake of simplicity. There is a tendency to decide that evil species worship evil gods and good species worship good gods, and this makes sense. A species that tends to go around murdering people is probably going to worship a god of murder if one exists. This is a little bit simplistic, but it makes so much sense that it's kind of hard to ignore. And I feel like this is one of those areas where we can be a little bit predictable and no one's going to cry foul. What gets a little bit more interesting is if we have a god of good fortune and we have this murderous species also worship that god. Now, why would that happen? Well, if I was going to go murder someone, I would certainly hope that my attempt to do so would go well. So maybe I would also worship the goddess of good fortune. Now, that god or goddess of misfortune might not answer my prayers, but then again, who knows? You know We can make things more complicated than they appear at first. The question that that scenario raises is whether this god of misfortune actually cares what sort of act is going to take place before deciding to bless that act. At first glance, it seems obvious that a god would care. After all, they don't go around blessing every last action, right? At the same time, I'm not going to ask that god to bless everything that I do. You know, if I'm at dinner and I'm reaching for the salt, I'm not going to ask the god of good fortune to make sure I don't knock over a drink while I'm doing so. Of course, I could do that, but if I was the god being asked for trivial things like that all the time, I would probably tune it out, wouldn't I? So it's reasonable to assume that the gods do pay attention to what's being asked of them. Is the god of good fortune going to bless someone who is going to murder someone so that the murder takes place? Well, you're going to have to answer that question for yourself because it's going to depend on what you're doing, but for normal scenarios, we would probably say no. At the same time, if the god of murder is watching and trying to decide whether to let something happen, maybe that god doesn't want a certain person murdered and therefore thwarts the murderer. Now, we don't need to discuss every last scenario because there are so many of those that we would be sitting here for the rest of our lives. But the point I'm trying to make is that our gods are going to pay attention to what is being carried out and decide whether it happens or not. And by the same token, the species are going to choose gods to worship based on the way that species in general is, and then of course the way that individual member of that species is. Obviously, to determine this, we have to have this worked out. For the rest of this discussion about this, I'm going to assume that you already know the dispositions of your gods and your species. That said, if you don't, this is an opportunity to invent either the gods based on what your species are actually like, or the opposite of this. Now, if you already have your species, but you don't have your gods, it can be relatively easy to invent gods that you imagine your species would worship. Especially if you are new to worldbuilding, this might be the way to go. And even if you've been doing worldbuilding for a long time, you've probably created a lot of gods, and at this point you might feel like you're just out of ideas. On one hand, we don't want to be redundant, but on the other hand, it makes sense that every world is probably going to have a god of war or a god of death or some, you know, some of these basics. So when it comes to the gods, we don't need to go crazy looking for a variety. It's more when we are inventing a new species that we want to do a species on one world that is totally different from a species on another world that we've invented, because otherwise that will stand out as we're basically stealing our own idea. In that sense, you might want to put your priority and your focus on the species and its character and its behavior and make that unique and then tailor your gods to the species. So let's assume you already know what your species is like. Well, it becomes relatively easy to invent deities that have something to do with the species. Not only their characteristics play a role in this, but so does their culture. If our species tends to live somewhere very humid, then maybe they focus on a deity that has something to do with the weather. This is also true if they are heavily into agriculture, because the weather is such an important part of that. This might also be true if they spend a lot of time outdoors, because they are not sophisticated enough to build their own settlements, and they therefore have no other choice but to either live outside or to take over abandoned settlements by other people. And those abandoned settlements are only going to be so well upkept, obviously. Exposure to the elements is going to make the species care about the gods who deal with those elements. A warlike species is going to care a lot about gods who are involved in war. This could be everything from a god of war to a god of skill or accuracy or even of virtue like knighthood. Well, that's not a virtue, but the virtues that go into knighthood. On the other hand, if the species tends to be very peaceful, then they're probably going to be paying more attention to a god of peace, for example. Some of this is fairly obvious, but I'm just trying to give you some basic ideas that you can start off with and then refine as you go along. What can really bring our species and their gods more to life for us and make it more vivid is when we find these contrasts, like the one earlier about a a species that tends to murder people but also worship the god of good fortune. This kind of contrast makes them more interesting. This sort of contradiction is a little bit easier to do if we already have our gods created first because one of the things we'll end up doing is looking at our gods and we'll have a list of them and seeing all the things that they care about and we'll have our species and we'll keep thinking, well, which one does this species pay attention to? And obviously they could worship more than one. But if we see, let's say we've decided a couple obvious ones and now we're looking at this list of other gods and we're thinking, well, is this species really going to ignore all of those gods? Well, that can get us into thinking about uh, more interesting ways that we could find to associate them with a god. And the best advice I can give you for that is to have that list of deities and look at your species and compare them. Think outside the box. Find a novel way to associate them with someone. As mentioned in a previous episode, one of the ways that I did this was I took a group of four gods and I merged them together into one sphere, as I called them, That was done for reasons that had nothing to do with the species, it was done for the gods, but then I decided that these seven different uh, spheres of gods had created my seven species on my world of Lurian, and I'd also decided that because a group of four gods had created a species, that this species was heavily influenced by those four gods, and this really helped me determine what these species are like, and of course it made it obvious which which ones of the gods they paid more attention to. This is one of the hidden benefits of having organized your deities. It can essentially do some of your work for you. Let's take a quick break here and talk about where you can get more useful worldbuilding resources. Artofworldbuilding.com has most of what you need. This includes links to more podcasts like this one. You can also find more information on all three volumes of the Art of Worldbuilding series. Much of the content of those books is available on the website for free. And the thing that you might find the most useful is that by signing up for the newsletter, you can download the free templates that are included with each volume of the Art of Worldbuilding series, whether you have bought the books or not. All you need to do is join the newsletter. You can do this by going to artofworldbuilding.com newsletter. Sign up today and you will get your free templates and you will never miss an update about what is happening in the great world of worldbuilding. Since we've been talking about characteristics, let's continue with that. Anyone who's ever played role-playing games has probably seen a list of characteristics like intelligence, wisdom, charisma, strength, constitution, agility, dexterity, and morale. This list provides an easy way to start thinking about what our species is capable of. This is one of those things that we might determine for our private files, but we never mention to the reader. What it gets us is thinking about what they're like and making a quick decision. What I typically do is use a scale rating from 1 to 10, with 1 as the worst and 10 as the best, and I just quickly make a decision. I don't spend five minutes thinking about whether the agility is a 7, 8, or a 9. I just pick a number and I go with it. Obviously, I'm never going to tell the audience this, and even for my own purposes, it's not enough. What you really want to do when you choose a number like that is just quickly do that at first to get some sense of what this species is good at and what it's not good at. What we want to do next is write a sentence or two describing that ability. If we've decided their intelligence is a 9, we don't want to just write that they're very smart, because that's obvious. What we want to do is describe that intelligence. For example, we could decide that they're very good with book smarts, so that they're very good with architecture and sciences and uh, technology in a science fiction setting. As a result, they're one of these species who invents things. They will most likely be respected for this intelligence and their abilities. And now we're starting to get into their relationships a little bit. Obviously, what we're doing is starting to flesh out what they're like based on this attribute. For intelligence, we could also decide that this means that they are quick learners. This implies that most of them are probably educated formally, and that they're the kind who not only attend universities, but also teach at them, and author scholarly books and other treatises, and anything that we associate with higher learning. This in turn might mean that the species in general is relatively well-off. Since they are well-educated, then they are probably the sort who are also in charge of governments. After all, there is often a pay-to-play kind of thing going on where the wealthy are the ones who end up in charge. We certainly see this here in the United States where I live, where there's an almost uh, oligarchy of people who are the wealthy running the country. The reverse can also be true. If we've decided that they've only got a three for intelligence, then this implies that they are not educated and that they don't have industry and that they are probably relatively poor as a result of not being able to hold down high-paying jobs. This might also lead to things like more crime from them if they're trying to improve their lives in ways that are not legal. This also might affect their morality, which is another one of the characteristics that I listed at the beginning. They may have questionable morality, which is not to say that those who are very intelligent have great morality, because they might also be corrupt. Actually, you know what? I misspoke. I mentioned morale before, not morality. Even so, the advice still holds. But while we're on the subject of morale, this is something that will come up in combat, and arguably, for those of us who are writing fantasy and sci-fi, are going to have characters who end up in fights. Morale is basically an indication of whether somebody runs away or they stay and fight, even if the odds are not great. Once again, we're talking about the characteristics of the species as a whole, and that allows us to determine if a specific character is someone who upholds that or who defies it. Wisdom is another one of our characteristics. The wiser people may be someone who is an advisor to a court, and a species could be known for this. They may either be the person who is in power or someone who advises them. An entire species can be known for this. They may also have decided to leave a peaceful, more humble life where they eschew that kind of thing, and maybe they just tend to be farmers who are out on the countryside, for example. Such a characteristic combination is something that we're going to make up as we go along. Of course, it's possible that these wise characters are the ones who are philosophers, who are writing important and influential papers and are therefore sought out, and they might also be teaching at universities. They may or may not be religious. It really depends on how you want to spin that. Charisma is another one of our attributes and can affect everything about this person or the species. They could be someone who's very charming and is therefore good at being a, an effective politician who rises to power, or they could be someone who has more street smarts and is good at charming people on the streets. This is its own kind of wisdom. It's what we might call emotional intelligence. Now charisma also takes into account the physical features of a species. A species we find physically unpleasant would not be a very charismatic one to most of us, and vice versa. Do you see how it's not enough to simply say they have charisma? We really need to qualify that. This is where a sentence or two comes into play, We're not just giving a number for charisma like 8. What we want to do is explain the number that we've assigned. Let's move on to some physical attributes, like strength. This is something that's pretty easy once we've decided what their body is like, so it doesn't really take that much thought to get across. However, we can decide that while the species is kind of slight of build that they have some sort of unusual strength. Maybe they frequently fool people into not expecting that. We have a certain amount of leeway here because, again, no no one from this world is going to show up and say that the species doesn't exist and they can't really lift something that's, uh, you know, a certain number of pounds. Then there is constitution. This is an indication of how hardy they are and how much endurance they have we may decide to take their physical appearance into account when deciding this. For example, if we have a species that's only three feet tall, then when they walk from one place to another, it's going to take far more steps for them to get there than someone who is twice their height. So we may decide that they have more endurance so that they can travel the same distance, maybe not in the same amount of time, but uh, you know they might reach a place in 10 hours versus uh, 6 or 7 hours, but they still get there in the same day. What I'm getting at here is that we can use constitution to compensate for this. Then there's agility and dexterity, both of which are a measure of how effective they're going to be in combat for most of us. Dexterity is going to affect the ability to manipulate anything with their hands, so a musician would have a higher dexterity. In our world, we may decide that magic requires drawing elaborate symbols in the air or manipulating things in complicated ways with the fingers, and that this therefore requires dexterity. Assigning our species a low dexterity might mean they cannot do these things. They might also lack refinement with something like a sword and end up using a more brute force weapon like a club. And that brings us to agility. If they have a high agility, then these might be our martial artists. If they have a low agility, then probably not. Having decided this will impact our decision on how they perform combat. So when it comes to getting started with making up some characteristics, we probably already have a basic impression of what they're like. So next, we just want to list these characteristics, assign a number, and then begin thinking about how to flesh out those with a few sentences that help us determine what they're like. The number is just a starting point and something that we're never going to tell anyone. For those of you who support crowdfunding, I am on the Patreon site and would appreciate any support you can lend. Think about whether you're benefiting from this podcast or the Art of Will Building blog and website and consider supporting the effort to spread the word far and wide. Your support could help a budding world builder create an awesome world that you become a huge fan of. This podcast and related items are my way of giving back to the fantasy, sci-fi, movie, and gaming industries that I love so much. You can give back too by helping to fund the effort. When the next Tolkien or George R.R. R. Martin shows up, you can tell yourself, I helped them do that. Your support can be just $1 a month to the cause. Higher levels of support get you increasingly cool things, such as PDF transcripts of this podcast, free MP3s including unreleased music, free eBooks and short stories, bookmarks, and even signed copies of books and CDs of my music. Many of these are unavailable to the public. Just go to artofworldbuilding.com/patron. You can also just go to the homepage and click the big icon for this. Please note that Patreon is spelled a little bit weird. It's P-A-T. R E O N. Support great world building today. Let's talk a little bit about the worldview of our species. One of the problems we can face as world builders is that we might have only lived in one place for most of our lives. The result is that we have a certain worldview, and we may assume that the rest of the world has a similar worldview even if we know better. And the end result is that we might assign that worldview to our species. There's nothing wrong with this, but if our audience is from the same place, then we're basically presenting a fictional species, just like humans. This is a mistake we should try to avoid. Now, if we've had the chance to live in different parts of the same culture or live in different cultures for extended periods of time, we might have a better understanding of how the worldview of different places actually is. If our own assumptions about worldview have been questioned, it makes it a little bit easier to detect the kinds of things that we might want to change. But without that, what do we do? We've tried to force ourselves to question everything. This can be difficult, and there is no shortage of fictional species who basically are humans by another name and with a different face or appendages or something similar. Personally, I tend to think of this as a failure of imagination. That's not the kind of reaction we want, right? We'll look at this a lot more in Cultures and Beyond, which is The Art of Worldbuilding Volume 3, and some of the episodes there, but I wanted to touch upon this now. One of the things we should want the most is for someone to react differently to things than we do. There are a lot of cliches that writers can run afoul of even when writing for human characters on earth. We certainly don't want fictional species to react the same way as us. For example, there is the innocence rant, as I think of it, and this is when someone says, but you're going to kill all of these innocent people, and someone says, innocent? They're not innocent, and you know, the bad guy starts going off about how no one's innocent. This makes me roll my eyes when it's a human doing this, but uh, imagine if a fictional species is doing that. We really need to avoid that. Originality in the worldview is going to be a lot more important than originality and what they look like, especially if you're working in the TV industries, because there's probably someone else who's going to go ahead and design that species on screen as far as their physical appearance. So as world boaters, I think the most important thing we can focus on is the worldview of our species. One way to do this is to think of cultures on earth that are different from the one we live in and borrow ideas from them. For example, we had the Vikings. They were known for being a seafaring power back when ore-powered ships were the rage, and we hadn't really gotten that good at wind-powered ships, and they also did a lot of conquering. They were thought to be very fierce and strong and have a love for mead. None of this is their worldview, but these actions result from their worldview, which was that the world was a place for them to go out and conquer. Now why did they have that worldview? Well, I don't know. I haven't researched the Vikings, but you certainly can and go and take that and apply that attitude to one of your species. This is what's known as an analog, which was touched upon earlier in this podcast. An analog is when we use something from Earth and we mold it to our fictional world. The Europeans had a certain worldview when they were exploring the world and conquering places like what is now the United States. The Native Americans had a different If we can't think of a group like this, then we can take a famous leader like Genghis Khan and research who he was and the people that he led and what their attitude was. The worldview will also impact what sort of government a species typically has in their own settlements. Now, many of us don't find discussions of government interesting, but I promise you that if you read Creating Places, which is Volume 2 in the Art of Building series, I will change this for you, because I go into quite a bit of detail about the differences between one government type and another, at least at the high level, so that you can make a good decision about what to do in your world. Monarchies, dictatorships, and republics are all vastly different in the outlook of the species who has created that form of government. This is not to say that one species will only have one of these. For example, humans have all of them. If you, if you create elves, for example, or something similar, they might have a monarchy in one place or a dictatorship in another. Now, we don't associate elves as having dictatorships, but anything is possible if we really want it to be that way. One of the things we want to avoid is a monoculture, where a species is their culture because they're all the same. This might seem like a contradiction that I'm bringing up because I am talking about creating generalizations, but we can create more than one generalization. So when it comes to both worldview and society, we should decide whether they respect human rights as we call them here on earth. Do they believe in personal liberty? This is again going to inform the type of government they come up with. Do they believe in marriage? Do they accept divorce? What is their view on homosexuality? How do they feel about the accumulation of wealth? Is this something they look to or do they try to have the wealthy spread that money to the poor? Do they believe that personal liberty is so prized that they don't have that many laws and therefore there might be more crime? That could in turn lead to certain people finding their settlements desirable because they're the kind of people who are up to something. And by contrast, there might be good-hearted people who don't want to live in such a place because they don't want to feel like they don't have that kind of protection. This could also result in weapons being allowed to be carried openly or a policy could be there to prevent that sort of thing where people have to lock up their guns or their swords before entering town. Sometimes to get at the worldview we have to think of some practical limitations and how those apply. This is arguably what we're really after because we don't want to be writing passages about the worldview. We want that worldview to inform the behavior that our characters can get away with. Restrictions that they run afoul of is also important. We should also consider how they raise their young. Uh, Do we have a nuclear family where there's usually a father and a mother? Or is it more of an open-ended kind of thing where it's almost like animals, where it's, it's born into the society and for a few years it's attached to the mother, but then it's set free. This could have a huge impact on the society. All of this affects the customs, such as birth, death, and burial rituals, and things like weddings and divorce. This can affect simple things like whether we shake hands or hold doors or we salute people. Do people trade gifts upon meeting? While this is the custom, it may come out of a worldview of wishing happiness to people, for example. There are so many things that we could do with worldview that it can be overwhelming, and that's why there's a whole volume on culture in this Art of building series. We will touch on this much more later, but I wanted to get you thinking about the general worldview of your species. And one of the biggest questions to ask yourself is... Are they a force for good or for evil? Are they part of the problem or part of the solution? So let's talk about how to subscribe to this podcast. A podcast is a free downloadable audio show that enables you to learn while you're on the go. To subscribe to my podcast for free, you'll need an app to listen to the show from. For iPhone, iPad, and iPad listeners, grab your phone or device and go to the iTunes store and search for The Art of World Building. This will help you to download the free podcast app, which is produced by Apple, and then subscribe to the show from within that app. Every time I produce a new episode, you'll get it downloaded right onto your iDevice. For Android listeners, you can download the Stitcher Radio app, which is free, and search for The Art of Worldbuilding. This only needs to be done once, and at that point, you will never miss an episode. The last thing I want to talk about here in this episode is human commentary. What do I mean? Well, one of the best uses for a species is to offer a contrast to us. For example, if you think that humans are greedy in general, or that this is a failing of ours, then you can create a species who is very generous and craft a story where this conflict comes up. I've read many stories where elves are either immortal or they live a thousand years or more, which of course is far in excess of humans. This has often been used to depict humans as being impatient. This is practically a cliche at this point, but you get the idea. This sort of comparison can make the audience relate to our work a little better. That really depends on who our audience is, but I think that even younger people in their teens like uh, reading something that makes them think a little bit while they're being entertained by the action. Part of what we're getting at here is the relationship of our species to everyone else. It's a good idea to decide how our species not only interacts with humans but with each other if we are creating more than one of them. It's a little too easy to just figure out how the humans interact with them and not think about their relationships with each other. But this is something to work on later after you've already got a pretty good idea of what this species is like. And what your second species is like. In the free templates that you can download by joining the newsletter, I do have a section for working these out. As with everything, it's designed to get you thinking and is not mandatory. Nothing in world-building is mandatory. We should decide if these species are enemies or friends, and why, and do they have any legendary battles or animosities? Maybe they have some treaties. Uh, they might have been allies in the past, but are enemies now. There should also be classic misunderstandings or stereotypes that each has about the other. Humans may share some of these or not. Crafting all of this requires having a good understanding of worldview. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review the show at artofwillbuildingcom slash review. Reviews really are critical to encouraging more people to listen to a show they haven't heard of before, and it can also help the show rank better, allowing more people to discover it. Again, that URL is artofwillbuildingcom slash review. There are several other issues that we can discuss when it comes to inventing a species or race. This includes the languages spoken and whether they have their own written language. The ability to read or write is going to have a huge impact on how sophisticated their society can be. This subject is covered in more detail in Creating Life, but I'm not going to cover it here. I'm also not going to cover creating a history for our species and how this can make it more diverse. An even bigger subject I'm not going to cover in this podcast is the supernatural, which is not only phenomena and magic, but their use of godly power, such as the ability to channel a god's power through their own body. For those who write both fantasy and science fiction, we're also not going to cover the use of technology or combat. Both of these can be found in creating life. My final words on how to create a species or a race is to talk about where to start. The top-down approach means inventing a species at the high level and then working our way into details. For example, we could decide on a sea-dwelling species and then start working into details, such as whether they have gills or if they can survive out of water or even walk on land. The bottom-up approach means working on the details and then slowly integrating them into a unified whole. Maybe we first decide that the species has sharp claws, a barbed tail, and it's uh, frequently carrying people off at night, but it's seldom seen doing so, and it leaves no trace of where it went. From these details and more, maybe we decide that it's a sea-dwelling creature, and that the reason it's got claws is that it's for catching fish, and the reason people disappear is that they're taken underwater to a cave, or maybe even just drowned. This big picture is suggested by the details that we thought of first. Regardless of your approach, there's really no wrong way to do it, and as mentioned before, we will crisscross back and forth through our species, changing and updating things as we go along. All of this show's music is actually courtesy of yours truly, as I'm also a musician. The theme song is the title track for my Some Things Are Better Left Unsaid album. But now we're closing out with another tune. This is Duo from Serenade of Strings. You can hear more at randyellefson.com. Check out ArtofWorldBuilding.com for free templates to help with your world building. And please rate and review the show in iTunes. Thanks for listening.